Well, tonight we want to continue our study of Jude's letter, and it is interesting to me to note that this is actually our third week introducing this epistle. I can't recall in all my years of ministry ever spending three weeks introducing a book of the Bible, let alone a book as small and brief as Jude. But Jude is not like any other book in all of the canon of Scripture. It is similar to Second Peter, but not exactly like it. You see, in Second Peter, he tells us, the Apostle Peter tells us that apostates, false teachers, are coming. He warns the church. But in Jude, the message is that they've arrived. They're here. Peter warned us. He warned the church they were coming. And Jude must have been written a, a little bit later. And Jude tells us they have arrived. So Jude is not like any other letter that we have really ever studied. As I said, Jude addresses an issue that has um, that is so pertinent because it is actually uh, a message that has to be heard by the church because what Jude addresses is the issue of apostasy. Apostasy. What what is apostasy and what is an apostate? Well, the term apostasy means literally to fall away. And when it's used in the New Testament in reference to people, it refers to someone who departs from the faith. Not talking about someone who was saved and left the faith. That's impossible. But talking about those who at one time professed to believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. They professed to be saved. They never were saved. But now they no longer even profess to believe the gospel. Now, Jude is addressing that issue of apostasy. Apostasy has destroyed many local churches, theological seminaries, and entire Protestant denominations. And that is why it's such a critical subject. It's really what First John was talking about when John said, they went out from us because they were never really a part of us. They left us, they left the fellowship, they left the faith because they never really were a part of the faith. Paul spoke of apostasy affecting the church when he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Paying attention, he said, to deceitful spirits and doctrines of Demons. Paul also wrote Timothy in his last letter about a time coming when those not outside the church, but in the church, at least the professing church, will turn away from the truth of sound doctrine. Look with me, if you will, at Second Timothy chapter four. It wasn't very long ago that we studied this as we are going through sort of a survey of the New Testament, actually the whole Bible, the biblical flow of history, putting the Bible in chronological order. So we finished several months ago, Second Timothy. And in chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Many times we stop there and don't take it any further. Paul has just very clearly spoken in chapter 3 that all scripture is inspired by God and it is profitable, and he mentions what it's profitable for. And then he says, based on the Bible being the inspired and errant word of God, Timothy, you are to preach it. 
You are to preach it in season and out of season, which means that you're to do this all the time. But why? Why is it so important that that Timothy be so diligent and we be so diligent in proclaiming the word? Because verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's the professing church. The world has never endured sound doctrine. It is the professing church that at one time said they wanted sound doctrine, said they believed in the essentials of Christianity, but, Paul said, but wanting to have their ears tickled, meaning they want, to, they want feel-good sermons. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So Paul's point to Timothy is, Timothy, while people will listen to you, while you have a platform to proclaim the word of God, do so. Because there's coming a time when even those in the church will say, no, we want to hear myths and fables and stories that make us feel good. Now, Jude, as we go back to Jude, Jude is written, as we'll see tonight, to warn readers, his readers, about certain apostates who had infiltrated either a local church that Jude is writing to, or perhaps it was several churches in one region. But he's writing to tell his readers, these Christian individuals, that apostates have entered into their church family and they pose a serious threat to them and the vitality of the local church. And that's really an essential key to to know if we're to understand Jude and why Jude was so burdened to write this little letter about apostates. Jude is burdened. He changed his mind, he tells us in verse 3. He was going to write a letter simply about uh, about the common salvation, some aspect of salvation, but he knew that, that apostates had come into the church and now he, he needed to write this letter to warn the church and to tell the church about them and to protect them. Now, understand this. Apostates are, are not simply false Christians. They're, they're not that. They're not simply unbelievers. They are unbelievers who have an agenda. That's what makes them so dangerous. They are false Christians with an agenda. As I said, they're not simply unbelievers. They are unbelievers who are quite wicked and bent on denouncing Christianity by their doctrine as well as their lifestyle. Notice some of the ways, for example, that Jude describes these apostates. And we're going to go over verse 4 tonight, but let me just highlight it. He says in verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They claim, based on this verse, to have accepted the grace of God in Christ. They claim to have accepted God's grace of salvation. So they are professing Christians, but they twist the grace of God. They distort God's grace and they say that based on God's grace, you can do anything you want. That's a license to sin, licentiousness, unrestrained behavior. Also, according to this verse, Jude says they are ungodly. They are ungodly. And Jude goes on to describe in this brief letter some of their ungodly behavior. For example, verse 7. I just want you to have a feel for what these people were like and what they're like today. Because that's why this letter is still so relevant. Because we have apostates today. In fact, we have more apostates today than they had back 
then. Because we have more people, we have more churches, we have more error. But notice in verse 7, he says they are sexually immoral. Generally speaking, an apostate is sexually immoral. He speaks of just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulge in gross immorality. There's, there's something wrong with their sexual Behavior. Verse 8, he says, they defile the flesh. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh. In verse 8, he says, they reject authority over them. They defile the flesh and reject authority. He says, they even revile angelic majesties. They have the audacity to speak against angels. They are greedy, financially greedy. We know that because in verse 11, he says, woe to them. They have gone the way of Cain and for pay, they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam. Balaam was that Old Testament soothsayer, Gentile soothsayer, a false prophet who did what he did for money. So they're greedy. They care only about themselves. They care about no one else, even if they pretend to be gentle and caring about others. Notice verse 12. They are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They're in the fellowship of believers. They're with you at the Lord's Supper. They're with you in the agape feast. But they care only about themselves, not about you, nor about the Lord Jesus Christ. They are arrogant in their speech, verse 16. They are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust. They speak, Jude says, arrogantly. And they base their behavior on their lust. When he says in verse 16, grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust, he means they do what they do because they are driven by lust, by their own desires. They cause division in the church. They don't just sit... Uh, in the back pew or in the front pew or any pew and just go with the flow, they actually cause divisions. Notice verse 19. These are the ones, Jude says, who cause divisions. And he goes on to say they are worldly-minded. They care nothing about spiritual things. They are worldly-minded. And notice the last phrase, which sort of explains all their behavior, devoid of The Spirit. They profess to be saved, which would mean they profess that the Holy Spirit indwells them. But Jude here says they don't have the Holy Spirit living in them. Now, as you'll recall from our previous studies, Jude was a leader in the early church. We know he was physically related to the Lord Jesus, he was his half brother, and he was also the full brother of James who was well-known among the believers. James was, perhaps, as well-known as any early church leader. And that's why Jude mentions him in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, even though he's his half-brother, he's humble enough to tell us he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. There are no uh, special privileges that he gets because he was physically related to Jesus, and he's the brother of James. As I said before, the only reason he would mention that is to give him some credibility because everybody knew James. According to verse 3, as I said, while he was preparing a letter to write to these believers about some theme related to salvation, word came to him about the dangerous situation about these apostates in the church. But he says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing 
that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. He's telling them that based on the dangerous situation in your church or churches, the most pressing need for you right now is to know not some theme about salvation, as important as that is. You need to fight. That's what contend means. You need to fight for the faith of the gospel. Not personal faith, not subjective faith. This is objective truth, the gospel message, the basics of Christianity. You fight for the gospel that was once and for all delivered or handed to the church. It's not to be changed. It's not to be distorted. You fight for the truth that was given to the apostles and what the apostles have passed on to you. But as we'll see tonight, they needed to fight. Why? Well, he explains in verse 4, because certain men in the church were trying to change the gospel, denying the truth, distorting the divinely revealed truths of Christianity that had been given to God's people. And so Jude now explains in verse 4 why it is so important for them to fight. And I hope, folks, that that after tonight's study, you'll not only have a greater understanding of why it is so important that each of us in in whatever sphere you are in that you be involved in fighting for the truths of scripture and i gave some suggestions and actually some thoughts last week more than suggestions about what we can do to fight for the truth but that but that not only will you be involved but you'll be motivated properly motivated to do this because you'll understand what this is all about this battle For the gospel goes on today more than ever as many men are in influential pulpits all across not only our country but the world who continue to deny the gospel. Most of the time they're very popular. They're well known. Why? Because they are tickling people's ears. They're telling people what they want to hear and so they gain a huge following. Many seminaries have turned away from the word of God. And there are many influential seminary professors who are teaching impressionable students to question the validity of Scripture. And even the the very heart of the gospel, justification by faith alone. There are books coming off the press by well-known authors who water down the gospel so that you look at it and you go, where is the gospel? Where is sin even mentioned? Where is the atonement? Where is conviction? And, and where is repentance and where is the Lord Jesus even mentioned here? So tonight we want to examine the dangers of apostasy. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. We'll focus on that one theme, the dangers of apostasy, as we look at verse 4 and see why Jude not only wrote this letter, but why he was so burdened to write this letter. Why he was so concerned that he said to these folks, you've got to fight the faith. Now, in describing the kind of men that his readers will have to contend with and the kind of people we have to contend with, Jude gives us four descriptions of an apostate. Four descriptions of an apostate. Remember I said an apostate is someone who professes to believe in Jesus. He doesn't believe in Jesus. He's never believed in Jesus. He is a false believer, but he's a false believer with an agenda. He wants to denounce Christianity. He wants to upset your faith. And so let's begin by looking at the first description that Jude gives of an apostate is that they are deceitful. An apostate is deceitful. Verse 4 begins this way. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. 
Now Jude begins his description of these men as those who have crept in unnoticed, meaning that they have crept secretly into the local church. That's the thought here. In other words, they came in to the local church, and literally this means alongside of. That's the thought. They came in alongside of of true Christians, pretending to be real Christians, and they just kind of crept in and flowed in with the crowd, and nobody really knows that they're not true Christians. But they're not. But they're not. So they came in alongside with the flow. They crept in. Someone said, you can translate this, they kind of wormed their way in. One Bible teacher said they came in through the side door. That's sort of the thought here. You see, apostates are deceptive. They are deceptive. They don't get up in church and say, I'm an apostate. They don't do that. They don't have signs. They don't don't have shirts that say, I am an apostate. They don't do that. But apostates are deceivers. They pretend to be true believers, but they are not. They are very subtle. Because at first, you know what? They talk like believers. They use the right Christian jargon. They say the things that evangelicals want to hear, but they are really, and note this, they are really Satan's ministers. And eventually, they will begin, at some point, they always do this, to undermine the authority of Scripture and question some of the key essentials of the faith. It's critical to keep in mind that when it comes to apostates, the issues are not minor doctrinal differences. Within the sphere of what we call orthodoxy, there are believers who have legitimate differences, perhaps on the mode of baptism, on some things related to to prophecy, uh, on some other minor, relatively minor issues. That's not the gospel. But when you're talking about an apostate, those are not the issues that they, they differ with. The issues that they differ with are the issues that are central to the gospel message. The deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the atonement. The definition of of sin, justification by faith alone, what faith really means, repentance, the lordship of Christ. Those are the key issues, man's sinfulness. This is why Jude exhorts us to contend for what? The faith, because that's what they attack. They attack the faith. And because the apostates deny and distort the faith, they do it. In a dangerous way, because they're subtle and deceptive. They deny it, they distort it, but they do it in such a way that that they are deceptive. That's why they, they are so dangerous. They are deceitful, because Satan is a deceiver, and he's their leader. Satan is their role model. He's planted them in the church. And I want you to see two passages of Scripture that speak of their deceitfulness and the fact that Satan has purposely planted them in the church. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, if you'll recall, if you were here when we studied 2 Corinthians, which was not too many years ago, but in 2 Corinthians, the whole background of that letter is that the church had people in it who were false apostles. False apostles, false teachers had come into the church and and they had wooed the believers, the Corinthians, not only to follow them, but they undermined the authority and the apostleship of Paul. They said, Paul's not a real apostle. He doesn't keep his word to you. He suffers too much. They said he's not eloquent in speaking. 
He, he's kind of unimpressive looking. And so they continue to just undermine Paul. They said he's, he's crafty. He's, yeah, he says don't give him any kind of financial remuneration, but that's because he's taking money from the offering plate. And they all horrible things against Paul. And finally, and Paul deals with this throughout the letter, but finally in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul just exposes them. Paul just finally tells the church, listen, you need to know who these men are. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers. Notice this, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, he says, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul makes it very clear that apostates are Satan's ambassadors. They are his ministers. Anyone who is a deceiver in the church in this setting and context has been placed there by Satan. They follow Satan and he is their leader. But I want you to also look at Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus, I actually mentioned this this morning, he gave several parables. One of those parables he he gave was about tares, false believers, planted in along with the wheat. Notice in Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, Jesus said, presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping... His enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Tares would be seed that looks like wheat, but it's not. It's not. And then he went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. Now, notice, if you turn the page, or maybe it's on the same page, verse 36, Jesus explains what he's talking about. In some of the parables, he gives very clear explanations. Verse 36, then he left the crowds, went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. So we don't even have to uh, guess at interpreting this or try to figure this out. The Lord has told us. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, they are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, that's Satan. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Listen, according to Jesus, a very sobering thought is that not only have apostates been planted in local churches by by Satan's design, but apostates are going to be with us. They're going to be with us in the church until the end of the age. Jesus said, don't don't go ripping them out. I mean, the parable speaks of this. We didn't go over all that tonight. Don't go ripping them out because you can't always distinguish who a tear is and who a true believer is. But they're going to be with us until the ends of the age, and then they will be judged. But we need to understand tonight, we want to, we want to probe and see how do they creep into churches without being detected. 
And how do they operate to undermine the faith once they are in the church? Well, in his book, Truth Wars, John MacArthur writes about how false teachers can be so inconspicuous. And I want you to hear this. He says they usually do a passable job of imitating the fruit of the Spirit. They disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness. They seem quite sincere. They look and sound and seem harmless enough. They know how to use spiritual sounding language. They can even quote scripture with some degree of skill. They know the truth well enough to use it for their own ends, sometimes taking cover behind one truth while they attack another. They know exactly how to gain trust and acceptance from the people of God. Rarely are their assaults on the truth open and head-on attacks. Instead, they prefer to work underground, drilling little holes in the foundations of truth itself. They do this by suggesting subtle redefinitions, by making crafty modifications, or by suggesting that contemporary Christianity needs to reimagine, update, or simply jettison some supposedly obsolete doctrine. They usually try to sound as innocuous as possible while planting as many doubts as they can. Those doubts are like sticks of dynamite in the foundation holes they've drilled. They are actually working toward the wholesale demolition of the entire structure. So what he's saying is they they go doctrine at a time, drilling little holes until eventually there's the foundation crumbles. So Jude tells us, first of all, these apostates are very deceptive. They come alongside of true believers, claiming to be genuinely converted, but they are really the devil's tares among the wheat. And they introduce to the church doctrines of demons. But as deceitful, deceitful as these individuals are, and as they are hard to detect at first, Jude wants us to know we shouldn't be surprised by apostates being in the church. None of us should be surprised by that. Why? Because the Bible has very clearly warned us about apostates infiltrating amongst the people of God. Notice what Jude, as we continue in verse 4, what Jude goes on to say about these deceitful apostates. He says they're deceitful, but don't be surprised by them. Because in verse 4, he goes on to say, he says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. He identifies them as those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. Now, what does this mean? Jude is telling us that their condemnation, their judgment was written about long ago. You see, the word marked out does not mean does not mean that God marked certain men out to be apostates and they had no choice in the matter because God ordained it. That's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying at all. No, the Greek word here means that long ago their condemnation was written about in Scripture. It means it was pre-written. In other words, we shouldn't be surprised by the apostasy that has come because God wrote about these men and their condemnation long ago. Now, there's a debate as uh, amongst Bible teachers as to what Jude is exactly referring to. What scriptures would Jude be talking about? There's certainly a lot of, of statements in the New Testament about apostates. Jesus spoke about false teachers. Second Peter speaks about them. But I don't think that that's what Jude was talking about because he says that it was long ago they were marked out, which would seem to me 
to indicate that he's talking about the Old Testament, Old Testament scriptures. And there are a number of places in the Old Testament in which God tells the Jewish nation about false prophets. Let me just take you to two of those. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 5, now there are far more than what I'm going to read to you, but in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31, God says this, the prophets, he's talking to Israel, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. But what will you do? At the end of it, meaning you love what they have to say, but what are you going to do when judgment comes? What are you going to do when judgment comes? Hosea chapter nine, verse seven and then verse nine highlight the same truth. He says in Hosea, the days of punishment have come. The days of retribution have come. Let Israel know this. The prophet is a fool. The inspired man is demented. He's not talking about godly inspiration. I'm talking about biblical inspiration. False inspiration. He's demented because of the grossness of your iniquity and because your hostility is so great. Then he says in verse 9, they have gone deep in depravity as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Now, notice in light of that, notice what Peter says. Let's look at Second Peter. And you might want to put a bookmark there because... We're going to look at 2 Peter a little bit more. But in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people. He's talking about the Old Testament people. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. Just as there were false teachers among the Jewish people in Israel, so Peter says there will be false teachers among you. And notice, he's saying exactly what Judah's saying who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now, as I said, the difference between Peter and Jude is Peter is saying they're coming. Jude is saying they're here. But that's the same thing. Their condemnation has been written about long ago. So Peter essentially says the same thing. And the fact that they are arrived, Jew tells us, and they are in various churches shouldn't be surprising and shouldn't cause anyone to despair because long ago God said it would happen and long ago God said he would judge them. So we don't need to despair about it. We do need to contend for the faith. But in, and in the meantime, we do need to know something of the character and the behavior of apostates so we can do the best we can to Detect them. Detect them. Even though they are so deceitful. And so Jude gives us a second description of apostates. First, he tells us that they are deceitful. Now he tells us that in addition to being deceitful, apostates are devoid of godliness. There is no godliness in them. He goes on in verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation. And then he simply says ungodly persons. That seems to be a key description that Jude uses of these people. Because notice in verses 14 and 15, he actually speaks about a book that was outside of the scripture. But for what Jude has used, it was true. 
and it is inspired here. He says, verse 14, it was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all. Notice this, the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude says the one thing that characterizes them, that describes them is they are ungodly. Now, what does that mean? Very simply, ungodly means that they leave God out of their lives. They live the way they want to live without any concern for God's standards of behavior. That's exactly how apostates are. They may give the impression that they're kind, they're, they're gentle people, they're just sweet religious people who want to be tolerant, they want to be broad-minded. But understand this, what drives an apostate is not a desire for tolerance. It's his own sensual lusts. Jude and Peter are quite clear about this. Notice, let's go back to Jude verse 16. They are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lust. That's what drives them, their own lust, sexual lust, as well as just desires to do whatever they, they want to do. Verse 18, that they were saying to you, this is what the Apostle said, in the last times, there will be mockers following after what? Their own ungodly lusts. That's what drives them. Peter says the same thing. If you look at Second Peter, it's a very similar uh, letter to, to Jude. Not exact, but similar. Second Peter 2, verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago, he says, is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. That, that's kind of what we covered. Go back to verse 2. That's what I really want you to see. Many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality. Why will, why will they be so popular? Because they preach a sensual message. The message is live any way you want. And what unsaved person wouldn't want to hear that? They want to hear that. So they're driven by sensual lust. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Suffering wrong. As the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. He said, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Probably he's talking about false male teachers who sexually entice unstable women having a heart trained in greed, and then Peter says, accursed children. Accursed children. Notice verse 18 of Second Peter, chapter 2. Again, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Chapter 3, verse 3 of Second Peter, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. Listen, understand that what Jude and Peter wrote about concerning godless, the godless behavior of apostates, that uh, they are driven by fleshly desires. They are not broad-minded. They are not tolerant. That's not what really drives or motivates them. They are driven by immorality by carnal ambition and by greed. So we don't want to be naive about this. They may be deceptive, but we don't need to be 
naive about this. They try to hide their ungodliness behind, at times, academic degrees, pious-sounding words, religious titles of respect or dignity. But behind all of that stuff is a heart of wickedness, a heart of wickedness. So how can you spot an apostate? Well, one way is by being aware, if you can, of their private lifestyle when they're away from the spotlight. What are they like when you get them in private? Because their lives, according to Peter and Jude, are so completely contrary to Scripture that you can't miss it. You can't miss it. They may act one way in public because of the image they try to portray, but they are different in in private. What's their speech like? How do they speak? That's what you want to you want to listen to. How do they speak? Do they curse? Do they use centrally inappropriate language? Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your mouth says it says accurately because that's what's in your heart. Do they crave the praise and approval of men, and I don't mean do they struggle with it. Every everybody struggles with wanting to have people like that. I'm not talking about struggling, and yet we know it's sin, and we want to die to that ambition. I'm talking about they just love it. They just absolutely love the praise and approval of men, and that's what motivates them. Because Jesus spoke of the Pharisees and said they perform their righteousness before you solely for the applause of men. That's all that they wanted, and that's all that they're going to get. That's all they got. What do these apostates look at when they're looking at the Internet? Anything inappropriate? Yeah. Are they carrying on adulterous affairs? Many times, absolutely. Do they have outbursts of of anger? Yes. Do they love money? Yes. You see, these are the kinds of deeds that come out of the heart of an unsaved person who pretends to be a Christian. It's just blatant. That's why Jude says in verse 19 that they are worldly minded and devoid of the spirit. They do not have the Holy Spirit living in them to restrain them from the deeds of the flesh. And watch this, because apostates are devoid of godliness, yet claiming to be followers of Christ. They do something that's very interesting in order to try to justify their ungodly behavior along biblical lines. See, someone who's just an unbeliever doesn't try to justify their behavior along biblical lines, but an apostate does. And that's why Jude gives us a third characteristic of an apostate. Number one, they are deceitful. Number two, they are devoid of godliness. And number three, they distort the grace of God. A normal unbeliever wouldn't do this, but an apostate would. He distorts the grace of God. Notice what Jude goes on to tell us after he says they are ungodly persons. He continues saying in verse four, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. A license to sin. Jude tells us that apostates hide their ungodly behavior behind the doctrine of the grace of God. That's precisely what he's saying. In other words, they believe that God's kindness to sinners allows them, gives them a license to live any way they want. And the way they want to live is immoral behavior. 
See, the Greek word for licentiousness carries with it the thought of the, of the absence of morality. It's unrestrained morality. And, and there's no shame to their thinking either. They're, they're not shamed by this. It's a license to live by the desires of the flesh. But not only do apostates distort the grace of God, Peter tells us they actually invite others to follow them in their wicked behavior. Notice we go back to Second Peter. Look at this. This is just, you know, it's so sad and our hearts should go out to people trapped in this. Look at Second Peter chapter 2. Verse 18 says, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. I take it that Peter is saying that there are certain people who come to these apostates and they want a fresh beginning. They've had difficulties in life. They want to escape from whatever errors they've been in. And now they've come to the wrong people. Because the apostates are going to entice them into even worse behavior. And verse 19 tells us what they do. Promising them, this is what an apostate does. He promises them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he's enslaved. They promise people who are very vulnerable, perhaps unstable, coming out of some very difficult situations in life they promise people looking for answers in life a religion where you can do whatever you want ever you want and those who embrace this kind of thinking peter says only come under a more severe bondage to their own fleshly behavior because they're not free at all they are in bondage to their own sin now i'm not sure exactly what the apostates of of jude's day told people in distorting the grace of God. Jude, Jude just gives us a broad principle. He doesn't say the specifics of it. But I do know what some are teaching today in twisting the doctrine of God's grace. So let me give you two things that people are saying today that twist the grace of God. Some teach that since salvation is eternal, it is forever, once saved, always saved, they would say that since you can't lose your salvation, do whatever you want. Live any way you want because God forgives us in Christ. You're judicially forgiven anyway, so live and do whatever pleases you. Folks, that's heresy. That is absolute heresy. The Bible certainly teaches, and we would affirm this, that salvation is eternal. You will never lose your salvation. But it never gives us permission to do whatever we want. When Jesus spoke, and I think it's the most powerful a straightforward statement about eternal security. In John 10, 27, he addressed this issue. He said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He said, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. But notice he said, they follow me. Not my sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life and they do whatever they want. They follow me. God's people do follow Christ. Certainly not perfectly. We have bumps in the road. We have struggles with sin, but, but our lives are characterized by following our Lord. The Apostle Paul told Titus that an understanding of God's grace motivates us to live godly lives, not ungodly lives. In Titus chapter 2, what a wonderful statement Paul gives to young Titus. 
Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. This is what grace does. When you understand the grace of our Lord, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless Deed And notice this, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Not a people who say, well, you can live and do anything you want, but a people who say, no, out of gratitude and love for Christ, we want to obey him because we are so grateful for the grace of God. Why would we sin against this love, against this grace? Now, there's a second way, a popular way that some contemporary Bible teachers distort the grace of God. Some teach that salvation only involves trusting Christ as Savior, but does not involve at all a submission to him as Lord. They would say that you can be saved but not be a disciple, and they would make that distinction when the Bible doesn't. That really is the heart of the, what's been called the Lordship Salvation debate. Can Jesus be your savior without being your Lord? And scripture says no. Now by that, we don't mean that every single thing we've got all straightened out in our lives and and that there's never any problem with sin and that we don't need to yield more to the Lord. But what it does mean is that you can't say, yes, I I believe Jesus died for me, but there's no way that I'm, I'm even caring about what the Bible says. There's no way that I'm following Jesus. Anyone who says that is not, is not a believer At all. And what's happening in churches, and this is where the gospel is being distorted. You have pastors who are telling the unconverted that all they need to do to be saved is to say simply a prayer of salvation as if that prayer saves you. They never speak of repentance. They never speak of the lordship of Christ. They never speak even of conviction of sin. Just pray this prayer. Folks, you don't see that in the Bible. That is distorting the grace of God. Along that line, some would say, if you just respond to an altar call, we'll have eight stanzas of just as I am, and we will put pressure on you, not leaving this building until you, you come down. I'm, I'm exaggerating somewhat, but you get the point. Listen, nobody is saved because they walk forward in a church. That's, that's, not, that's not salvation. Now, someone walks forward and truly trusts Christ as Lord and Savior, that's another thing, but it has nothing to do with an altar call or raising your hand in an evangelistic meeting. Some would even say, and especially to small children who are very impressionable, how many want to go to heaven? Well, what little kid is not going to raise their hand? Well, just pray this prayer and you're going to heaven. Listen, that is what has taken place in some circles. And that is a twisting of the grace of God. When God calls us to himself to be saved by his grace, first, he regenerates us so that we want to follow him. That means he gives us a new nature. And along with that, he gives us faith and repentance. He grants us that. And we want to follow him. That, that's why Jesus said, and we just saw this just a few weeks ago, about discipleship, which is, in biblical language, a disciple is a believer. Jesus said in Matthew 16:24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he has to deny himself, take up his cross, 
and follow me. I don't know how much clearer you can make it. You have to be willing to follow me. But understand, those who want to follow the Lord are those who the Lord has regenerated. I love this verse in Romans, this passage in Romans chapter 14. In fact, I think this was the um, years and years ago was the passage, which was my uh, passage in preaching, my very first message. Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. For none of us or no one lives for himself and no one dies for himself. He's talking about believers. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, notice, he says, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. He's not talking about just the title of lordship. He's talking about that in practical daily experience, he might be our Lord. We follow him. So true faith involves several elements. There's repentance, which is forsaking your sin. It's, it's turning from ruling your own life, essentially. It's trusting Christ as your only hope and confidence for the forgiveness of your sins. And it is submitting yourself to Christ's rule and authority in your life. It all goes together. It all goes together. But apostates never submit themselves to Christ's lordship because they live by their own rules. They live by their own desires. And it is this attitude towards Christ and his lordship that that leads Jude to give one final description of apostates. He has described them as being deceitful, devoid of godliness, as those who distort the grace of God. And now he describes them as those who deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. The end of verse 4 says, and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude tells us that in distorting the grace of God by turning it into a license to sin, these apostates were denying Christ's sovereign rule over their lives. I don't think that Jude means that they're getting up in church and verbally denying the deity of Christ. Now, that is what's happening today in many liberal churches and seminaries. They deny the deity of Christ. But I suspect that's not what Jude was talking about. I suspect that back at that time it would have been too blatant and and obvious. I take it what Jude is talking about is that these men were denying Christ's right to rule over them by the way that they lived. They may have professed, at this point at least, that Christ is divine, But by their very living, the way they lived, they were denying that. That's why Jude uses two words to describe Jesus Christ. He first calls him our only master. This is a unique word which speaks of a ruler with absolute sovereignty. It's not the word that's translated Lord. It just means the absolute sovereign ruler. But he also calls Jesus Lord, which is his title of honor. These apostates did not submit to Christ's authority, nor did they honor him as Lord. They simply lived by their own rules while continuing to verbally, at least, profess to be one of his followers. So, folks, let's not be naive. Regardless of what a man says about Jesus, 
regardless of how sweet and kind he, he might look and how charming his smile might be, the evidence that he is a true man of God is that his life is in submission to Christ's lordship, which means that his life is in submission to the word of God. Before you ever support a ministry, make sure that its leaders are genuine Christians who are living publicly and privately by the word of God. Now, let me just say as we wrap this up, don't, don't close your minds yet, but in light of what Jude has told us about apostates, I want us to think through just for a few moments that what we can do as a church body to protect ourselves from men like he's described. Let me offer you several thoughts. First of all, as a church body, we need to keep making sure that our elders and any new elders we take on are all believers and that they are more than believers, they are men of God. That's not the case in many churches. Many churches, leadership is made up of apostates. We try to be very careful at Lakeside in the process of selecting elders. Before a man becomes an elder, he is examined thoroughly. He has had to fill out a number of questions that we're asking. He has been examined before all of the elders. We have met with the man. We have met with his wife. We have asked his wife, is he a man of God when we don't see him and you do? He, so he's closely examined before you ever get as a congregation to affirm this man. That has to be our commitment. Because everything starts with leadership. The church only is as strong as its leaders. So I want to just say to you that my commitment to you and our present elders is we will continue to be careful about that. Secondly, we need to make sure that as a church, the membership of our church is made up of only true believers. We try very hard to do this. We question people. They have to fill out forms. They have to share their testimony. If When an elder is reading their testimony, something doesn't sound right. We meet with them privately. Does that mean that that occasionally someone doesn't slip by who may not be a believer? No, they, they can. They can. I remember talking to someone years ago. This person has since died. But it occurred to me that uh, this person, based on what she said, thought this person is not even saved, but a member. But we need to make sure as best we can that our membership at Lakeside is made up only of those who are born again. And third, the third thing we can do as a church body is make sure that we publicly discipline those in our church who demonstrate by their behavior that they are not believers. And so we follow the steps of Matthew 18, which is not simply about confronting people, but it's, it's giving us steps whereby if confronting someone who claims to know Christ They're part of the church. They claim to know Christ, but they're not repentant over something that is glaring, that is obvious. If after several times of speaking to them, they still won't repent, then Jesus said, put them out of the church. They're acting like an unbeliever. Treat them like an unbeliever. They're not part of the church. So those are several things we need to keep in mind to do as best we can to keep apostates from being a part of our church. Now, tonight... As we have examined the fourfold description of an apostate, you need to consider this. If this description remotely resembles you, remotely, you have any of the characteristics, then you need to come to Christ for salvation. You may not even be an apostate, but you just may be one who's not a true believer. Are you really born again? 
Is your life characterized by following Christ or is it not? Now, I realize that all of us as true believers, we, we say, I want to be closer to the Lord. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, is there any fruit in your life of Christ's character and a desire to obey him? Do you live by your lustful desires or by the word of God? So make sure that you're a genuine Christian. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we are grateful for this letter that you inspired Jude to write. Lord, written so many years ago, but nothing more pertinent and relevant for us today. Lord, I pray that you will protect us as a church body from apostates. I also pray, Lord, that you will help us to be alert in our own spheres of ministry and life to be able to spot those who are apostates because, Lord, now we have books written by them, we have public ministries, television, radio, all of that. And so I pray that you'll protect us there. I pray that you'll help us to not be naive. I pray that you'll help us to understand the deceptiveness of uh, the enemy and that he's far smarter than we are. And so we, in our own strength, don't take him on, but we contend for the faith based on our understanding of the word of God. So I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to think about these things, to dwell on them. I pray for those in our midst, Lord, who may really not be following you and never have followed you, just made a profession of faith, but have never really been converted. I pray that you'll open their hearts to the gospel, that they might bend their wills to Christ, trust him as Savior, but also follow him as Lord. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name.